If you have not heard the story of John Newton, you need to go read it and then listen to that song again. It's incredible, incredible what he went through, his passion to go against what he had learned, and then God reaching down and his grace and pulling him up. And then him singing that song. It's an amazing story. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be in verses 1 through 10. It'll be a little different than what I'm normally used to doing in preaching just one text. So we're going to start here and we'll plow through some other verses here in a moment. But Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I love the sound of... Page is turning, so I'll wait. There was a time in church history that we've been talking about that that didn't happen in the church. And so by the very fact that you are ruffling the pages of a Bible tonight is a show of God's grace. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, and once you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, Like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, I plead with you tonight that you would save those that are lost. That you would reach down tonight in your grace, in your love, for your namesake, for your glory, and you would save those here who do not know you. I pray tonight, Father, that grace would take on a new meaning to believers here who have not preached this message to ourselves nearly enough. That we are saved solely, wholly of your grace alone, not of any doing of our own. For that we praise you. 
And we worship you. And we exalt you tonight, God. And we ask that you would be gracious to us in this hour. And that you would move our hearts by your scriptures that we would live differently. It's in the name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen. The Protestant Reformation was a return to the truths of Scripture. What the Reformers did was much like what King Josiah did when he took and restored the country back to the worship of God. When he restored the law of the Lord in the land. The church had drifted far from the teachings of Scripture, including the very topic that we're discussing tonight, the teaching that grace is the only source of our salvation. The the church was teaching that man played a part in earning favor with God as he performed his works of righteousness, thus in some way obligating God then to save them. They taught that Christians are saved not merely by faith alone, by grace, but that you had to have works for salvation. And that grace precedes, accompanies, and follows those good works. And so grace just became this way of doing good works, an ability that was given to us that caused us to be able to do good works that were then merit God's favor on our lives. We're going to see tonight in Scripture that these claims, by the way, there are people, denominations, religions today that are saying the exact same thing. Not just Catholics, okay? There are religions, there are people that are beating us to the mission field with that heresy. We run into them all the time. But I'm not going to get to my application yet. But those claims are false. And we're going to see from Scripture tonight that we are saved by grace alone. There is nothing that you can do to earn the favor of God upon your life. Martin Luther, as a young monk, sought God with all of his heart through his works of self-denial and scripture reading and fasting and confession and all of these things so that he could somehow earn the favor of God upon his life. He would repeatedly, as Ken mentioned, he would repeatedly go to confession, even getting up and thinking, oh, I forgot to mention one, turn around and go right back to confession. He would beat himself. He would labor over this idea of wanting to please God by what he did, so much so that he came to the point that he hated God, that he couldn't please him. He found no rest in his works until he was studying through the Psalms and the book of Romans, and he came across Romans 1.17. And he saw in that passage 
the grace of God. So what is grace? Grace is the free, unmerited favor of God upon those who deserve punishment. Sola gratia, grace alone, simply means that God is the decisive cause of our salvation by bestowing on those whom he will his sovereign grace. Martin Luther called grace, he said, the issue of grace is the hinge on which all turns. If there's no grace, then there's no Christ alone. If there's no grace, then there's no faith alone. If there's no grace, there's no scripture alone. So everything hinged upon God giving his grace, regardless of what we did. So faith alone, Christ alone, find their foundation in grace alone. There is no human influence, no will, no acting, nothing of human effort. Our salvation is holy of God's sovereign grace. And that, my friends, is good news. It's good news to everyone who hears that. For those of you who are Christians right now here tonight, there ought to be something that is exciting about what I just said. There ought to be something that wells up inside of you. When we were singing Amazing Grace... Did you start getting goosebumps? Did tingling start happening to you? Did you get excited? Raise your hands? Want to sing loud? I'm afraid that our Reformed churches have become so engulfed with truth that we forgot the Spirit. We know what it means, but it's not moving us to a passion for God's glory. There's no emotion. Do we understand grace? Do we really understand it? We can have an intellectual assent to something, but not really understand what it means. I would love it if y'all just got a little bit charismatic on me tonight. Just a little bit. It's not a bad word. All right, charismatic's not a bad word. It's been messed up. It's a good word. And it's okay to get charismatic. It's okay to raise your hands and shout and get excited for the Lord. He has done something. You know, we sang a song tonight said that he is able. And I was sitting there thinking, you know what? Not only is he able, but he did it. It's one thing to have the strength and the power to do something. It's another thing to act and make it happen. And God did that for you and for me. When he didn't have to. Matter of fact, it would have been just, it would have been right for him to send us to hell. And yet grace. It's amazing. I just wonder how many times we actually feel that it's amazing. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones said that many people in the church, is grace amazing to us or is it boring? Because many times we act like it's boring. When it actually it should be the one thing that we get excited about. 
So tonight, I pray that by the time I'm done preaching, grace has overwhelmed you so much that not even, nobody can not slap a smile off of your face when you think about grace. That's what I want to happen to every one of us, that we would leave here joyfully excited about God and his grace in our lives. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2 as our launching point to see what the Bible has to say about grace alone. Then we're going to look at three ways in which grace is seen as the only source of our salvation as we look at election, justification, and sanctification. And then we're going to finish it up with six implications for grace alone in our life. Chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead. Don't know if you knew this, but you were dead. It's not a pretty picture. Actually, it's a very grim picture of life. You were dead. It's not a man that is sick and in a hospital and needs a doctor to help him. You are dead six feet under the ground And the last time I checked, dead people are completely helpless. I worked, many of of you know John Ellis. I worked with him for a number of years, and we just laid him to rest this year. And I don't hear him talk in the office anymore. I don't hear him start a sentence and then not finish it like he did to us so often at work. I don't hear that anymore. He's not around. He's dead. He's lifeless. He's helpless. There was no way for him to come back. And so in, this is not talking about a physical death though. Okay. Notice what it says. Notice these words in the text. You walked. You were following. You lived. You had passions. You were carrying out the desires of the flesh. That's what we did in our dead state. So this is a spiritual death that he's talking about here. We are dead to God. We are hopeless and helpless to save ourselves spiritually just as someone who is physically dead. It can't happen. We have no ability to respond to God in obedience. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 3 tells us that we don't even want to. We have no desire to please God. No one seeks after Him. So we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We rebelled and we walked and we followed the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? That's Satan. He's our master. He has us captive in our sins. And we walked in disobedience to God, carrying out the desires of the flesh. And get it, we did exactly what we wanted to do. In our natural self, that's what we want. And because of that, we are children of wrath, deserving of God's punishment. Notice the flow of the text. We sin, we're slaves to Satan, and we're headed to an eternity of damnation under God's just wrath. That was me, and that was you, And that may be some of you that are here tonight. 
Maybe you're here tonight and you're still living like you want to. You're still following the desires of your flesh. Still following, doing sinful things, disobeying God, following the desires of your heart. You are captive to Satan. And listen, because I love you, I want to tell you, you are headed to an eternity separated from God in hell. That is the most loving thing that a person can tell you in your sin. But then verse 4. But God! Not one person shouted. Come on. Amen something. Verse 4. But God, thank you. We are dead. Do you understand? We are lifeless. But God. He shows up on the scene and guess what happens? He makes us alive. Because of his great love with which he loved us, when even though we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. We're dead, but God made us alive. We're slaves to Satan, but God raised us up with him and seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are children of wrath, but God will show the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us Forever in the ages to come is what the text says. Not one, not two, but the ages. Forever God is going to be showing us His immeasurable grace. Do you get it? Do you see it? We were dead, hopeless, unable to do anything to resurrect ourselves. But God. Nicodemus asks, how can I be How can a man get to heaven? Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus, how can that happen? But God can do it. That's the only way that we can be born again. But God. God acted upon us because of his great love. He made us alive. And then it's as if Paul stops and is captivated just takes for a moment that pause right there you see the pause that's what that little double deal right there you got to stop and just focus for a minute Paul by grace here's how it happened by the way here's how God but God took you from being dead and made you alive with Christ by grace you have been saved by grace you have been saved he says it again in verse 8 for by grace you have been saved It is by the sovereign grace of God alone that you are saved. It is not our doing. It is a gift to us. It is a gift. We get more excited about Christmas morning than we do right here in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. But God, by grace you have been saved. It is a gift. Of God, so that nobody can boast. You know why Paul can say, I only boast in Christ? Because he realized there was nothing he did that deserved what he got. 
He didn't deserve salvation. I didn't deserve salvation. If you're a Christian here tonight, you did not deserve the grace of God. Can I please say that over and over and over again? Because we have churches filled with people who think that somehow, some way, I deserve the grace of God in my life. I'm a good person. I go to church. I check the boxes. I do everything right. I deserve God's grace. No. We don't. And it should be overwhelming. It should mess us up. That somebody would love me that much when I constantly was in rebellion. When I constantly said, God, I don't want you. I don't need you. You know why John Newton penned those words? He knew the depths of the sin that he had committed. And he knew the only reason that he was saved was because of God's amazing grace. What would be your song? What would be mine? It's a gift. It's not something you earn. Young people, there's not enough youth camps you can go to. There's not enough Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings Not enough memorization, not enough singing, not enough things that you can do that's ever going to earn you the favor of God. It's by His grace alone. For God's sake, for God's name, for His holiness, for His glory, let grace be grace. Stop trying to earn it. Now I want to take our attention to God's word to see three ways in which grace alone is the only source of our salvation. Number one, in our election. In our election. Election Is God casting his affectionate love on you, whereby he chose you before the foundation of the world by his sovereign grace for his good pleasure outside of anything we did? Let me say that again. Election is God casting his affectionate love on you, whereby he chose you before the foundation of the world by his sovereign grace. For his good pleasure outside of any works that we have done or ever will do. There is this idea. When I was in seminary, I went to a very Arminian seminary and became reformed while I was there. Praise God for that. His grace was there, no doubt. But there was a theological position that was espoused that said, Before the foundation of the world, God looked down through the corridors of time. And he saw Ralph and he said, oh, look, Ralph chose to repent. He was willing to hear the gospel and repent. So therefore, I'm going to choose him to be one of mine. You know, it just happened when we espoused that theological conviction. We just nullified grace. Listen to what I'm saying. We just nullified grace if there's any works on my part that is involved. 
God never looked down the corridors of time and said, hey, that person loves me and is going to serve me. I'm going to choose them to be saved. No, because then what we just did was manipulated God to choose us. That is a damnable heresy in the church today. That should never be taught. It, it's all about me. Hey, and beware. Churches are singing songs that's all about me. Instead of all about God. We're making the Bible more about us instead of what God did for us. Through Christ. Of his own choosing. That's not grace. That's me responding. That's God responding to me. I made God do something. That's not how the Bible works. That's not what it teaches us. If that's the case, that's a wage. That's a reward for what I did. I accomplished something. And it's unbiblical. Election is based solely on the grace of God alone. Notice the text. I'll try to take it slow. Romans chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. Paul, here in this text, is recounting the events of Elijah's day and how the prophets are being killed. Romans chapter 11, and verse 4. Paul says this, but what is God's reply to him, meaning Elijah? What is God's reply to Elijah when Elijah's crying out, all the prophets have been killed? What is God's reply to him? This is what God says. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Highlight it. Mark it up. Chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. There's a group of people who are chosen by grace or according to the election of grace. And notice, it is God who did it. I have chosen for myself. You didn't choose you for God. God chose for himself. And what? look at the text. In the days of Elijah, God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who do not bow the knee to Baal. Notice these important words, so too. So many times we read straight over that and don't take a second glance at it. So too means that in the same way that he did it back then, he is doing it now. Just as God chose them back then, so God now is choosing them by grace. There were prophets who died. Did y'all catch that? There were prophets dying. Men of God dying. Why did they die? And why did the 7,000 get to live? Why did... I grew up in the same household with my brother, both going to the same church, sitting under the same teachings. And here I am in the Bible, in the word of God, in the house of God, proclaiming the message of God. And yet my brother is still far from Christ. How does that happen? 
chosen by grace. Romans chapter 9, 10 and 11. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that, here's the purpose, here is the reason why, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. You see that? Before they could do good or bad. They did neither. But because of God's purpose of election, He called Jacob out. But not Esau. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Our election was before the world was created. Before you did anything good or bad, God chose whom he would save according to his purposes and grace. He saw that we were hopeless and he chose for himself a people by his sovereign grace. Romans 9, 15 and 16. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but what? On who? Who does it depend upon? God. But God. It depends not upon how much effort we put in, but it is God who shows mercy and compassion. How in the world did our church get to our churches get to a point where we messed that up when it is so plain in Scripture? Election is holy of grace. Let's look at justification. In order to stand in the presence of God, we must be justified or declared just, made righteous. How is that going to happen? You guessed it, grace alone. Romans chapter 3, 23 and 24. So many times we stop for the wages of sin is, or for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's where we stop. That's bad news. That's real bad news. You know what verse 24 does, though? But God. Just in a different word. Look at it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We've missed the mark that God has set and are, oh, wait, justified by his grace as what? As a gift. He didn't say as a reward or as payment, as wages for what you've done, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Don't stop at verse 23. That's not good news. Verse 24 is the good news that we are justified by grace. Not works. Titus 3, 7, 
So that being justified, being made right before God by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Galatians 2, 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Oh my. That just said that if I'm trying to obtain God's grace, then I just nullified the cross. And Christ died for no reason. To me, that's scary. That if, if I'm holding that position, that I can somehow come to God outside of the way he's planned and, and I nullify what Christ did. He died for no purpose. I'm going to tell God the Father that he sent his son, his one and only son, to die on a cross for my sins for no purpose. By the way I treat grace, I'm not going to be the one that does that. By God's grace. Look at Galatians 5, 2 through 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. If you seek to be justified before God by keeping the law, by making sure that you do everything just right, then you must keep every single one of them. And remember, God is the one who is going to be judging, who sees and knows all things, not you. I thought it was funny up here at uh, Buster's, the little crawfish place. He has a sign outside of it, and it reads, voted number one in the world. The next little portion comes back on, and it says, yes, I was the judge. You know what? We're not the judge. God is, and he sees everything. So if you intend to be justified before God by the law, then you have to keep all of them. And he will determine if you've broken one. Now, I don't know about you. But one thing that has happened to me in reading chronologically through the Bible is I have to read through the law. And I know that can become monotonous at times, reading through all of that. But one of the things that I want to encourage you that it did for me was to show me that I can't even remember half of them, much less obey half of them. So there's no way I'm keeping all of them. And yet people are trying to be justified. That's what the whole book of Galatians was about. Christ plus circumcision. We want to have Christ plus works. Christ plus sacraments. Christ plus this. Whatever it is that you add on to Christ, to grace, it nullifies it. And grace is no longer grace. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That we are justified. So not only are we saved by grace, elected and justified, but we are being saved. We are being sanctified by grace alone. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 10. 
or you can just write them down and read them later. 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Oh my goodness. That will mess you up. Is it me working? Is it grace working? What's going on here in the text? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And the only reason I do what I do is because of the grace of God. That's what Paul's saying. And at no point is it ever of my own doing, but the grace of God. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There we go again. We are working, and God is at work. And the only reason that we're working is because God gives us the grace to do it. Colossians 1.29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You see, Paul understood that the only reason he was doing what he was doing was because God's grace was flowing through him. It was moving him. It was giving him energy and power to continue on. It is God's grace alone that keeps us going in our pursuit of holiness. We pursue holiness? Yes. God is pursuing holiness in us through His grace? Yes. We are to be about killing the flesh, but it is always the grace of God that is enabling and empowering us to do so in our lives. It's not our own doing. Because if it was up to me, I would sleep in. I would watch TV. That's how I know it's not of me. It's the grace of God coming through me that says, Ralph, it's time to get up and get into the word of God. Get up, you sluggard, and go to my word and spend time with me. Because if it was left up to me, let's be honest with each other. We can be pretty lazy people. Don't be pious. You know, every one of you, I can look you all in the eye, and you're just like me. We get lazy, and we get busy, the church word, busy. And then when we stop using the busy word, we start trying to put another word in to substitute for that word, so it makes us sound a little bit better. I tried doing that too, it doesn't work. See, it's God's grace that is sanctifying us. I want to look at six implications for the grace, for grace alone in our lives. Number one is worship. This was the first implication that came to me. Worship. And I was reading through some scripture and I came across this text. Psalm 107, verses 1 through 9. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, 
for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Or that word is from the enemy there. Whom he has redeemed from the enemy and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry, thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to Yahweh in their distress, in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works through the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. That will preach a whole nother message right there. You see what the psalmist is doing with that? We have been redeemed by God's grace, so let us spring forth in worship. It ought to be the overflow of my heart. As I contemplate God's grace in my life, the very words of Scripture about grace alone should cause us to have unrestrained worship. We're too uptight in our worship of God. Ephesians 2.12 is a way of reminder Remember, that's what he says. That's the very first word of verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 2. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But God, if you don't remember where you were and what God did for you, then you're never going to cherish Him. You'll never worship Him like He deserves to be worshipped. I think that's one of the reasons I love John Piper so much. I love how he talks about treasuring Christ. savoring and cherishing that great treasure that is Christ. We must preach the gospel of the grace of our God to ourselves often so that our hearts and our minds will sing of God's praises. Number two, humility. Understand that it is by grace alone that you have been saved and be humbled. Out of all the Christians in the world today, I would expect those who hold to the doctrines of grace to be the most humble people in the world. And yet I find quite the opposite is true. And I hate it. Speaking matter-of-factly, I despise it. 
if we really are, I was having a discussion with some friends this week, if we really are the worst sinner that we know, why do we treat people as if they are? Why do we look down upon them and keep our distance from them because they're different from us? Why do we condemn people who struggle with sin as if there's no hope from them if we really believe that we're the worst sinner in the world? If we truly hold to grace alone for salvation, then our spiritual pride should be crushed, broken, And we should become the most gracious and loving and merciful people the world has ever seen. Don't let your works of righteousness that are done in you by God's grace be a place of pride. Boast in the cross. Boast Only in the cross. Because that is our only boasting. We don't do anything in and of ourselves, by ourselves. It is grace through us. It is Christ. We must boast in Him. And we must show grace and mercy to those who are struggling. Because we know what it's like. Because we too were dead. And there are sinners that are all around us. And yet, many of us don't want to get our hands and our feet dirty with their sin. So we're going to leave them alone. Every good thing in you is a grace of God. Every bit of it. Matter of fact, outside of God's grace in you, anything good you did is an abomination to God. Because it's not good. It is only grace flowing through us. Number three, prayer. Grace alone is the greatest incentive to pray for unbelievers. There is no one person in the world whose sins are too great for God to save if it is by grace alone. And it is. And so... We should pray to God to raise them from the dead and give them life. If salvation is holy of grace alone, then we can pray with a reckless abandonment for God to show mercy and believe that he'll do it. So when you pray for unbelievers, do you expect them to be saved? Because I think sometimes, God, I know you're going to save whoever you want to save. So if you choose to save, I don't like that. I don't like that. You pray with a reckless abandonment. You know what? Abraham went before God. He said, God, if there's 50, if there's 40, he kept on. God, if there's 30, please. If there's 30 people there, will you please save the city? If there's 20 He pleaded with God. Don't ever say to me, please, I love you, but don't you ever say to me, well, God's going to save whom God's going to save. 
Yeah, that's great theology. But it does a person going to hell no good. You know why? Because when you say that, you make a mockery out of God that He has called us to be His messengers. He has called us to preach, to proclaim, to evangelize the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so God works through the prayers of His people. So pray like eternal salvation is completely up to God, because it is, but then work like it's up to you. Be like Paul and let the grace of God... What did he say? Because I worked harder than every one of them. Not me, but the grace of God through me. Pray for sinners and work harder than anyone in evangelism and missions, which is number four. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. I do not count my life of any value as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I already said it earlier, no one's sin is too great for God's grace. If that's the case, why aren't we spending time with sinners? Sharing the gospel with the peoples of the world. Such a great... Donald, thank you for sharing. Another person has given their life to Jesus Christ because it was hard for them to get down there. It's hard. It's trying. You can get sick. You're going to be tired. But you know what? we got a group down there in Honduras right now that are working harder than many Christians today ever will. Ah, but not them. It is the grace of God in them that is working, that caused them to say, I'm going to give up a week of my life so that somebody can hear the message of Jesus Christ. And you know what? God worked. God moved. Number five. Stole this one, particularly from John Piper. Take risks with your money and your life. Take risk. That's something we don't do. We are risk-averse people. Financial term there. We're not going to put ourselves in a risky situation because that's not good. It is the grace of God alone that chose us. It is the grace of God alone that justified us. It is the grace of God alone that is keeping us and sanctifying us. So guess what? Live in such a way with your life that it has no hold on you. Live and take risks so that the world sees the beauty of Jesus Christ. It's not your life anyway. 
It belongs to God. We are His workmanship. He has created us. He made us. Before the foundation of the world, He knew who we were. And He created us as His workmanship. God gave every ounce of your life to you for His glory so that you can be spent for Him. Don't waste it. Please, don't waste your life on meaninglessness here. Eternity is at stake. There are people that are dying and going to hell. Eternity is at stake. And I promise you this, if you spend your life for Christ, you will not have wasted it, not one ounce of it. Number six and last. Took this one from Piper too. It was just too good. Do not say, I may not be chosen. This is for those that are out there tonight that have not put your faith in Jesus Christ. You haven't been saved. You haven't repented of your sins. Don't believe the lie that you've done too many bad things and there's no way that God chose you and could ever save you. Don't say that. Instead, say to yourself, if God chooses by grace, not because of anything I've done, then there's no reason I can't be saved. Isaiah and the book of Revelation both echo these words. Come. Come. It's free. Come and receive God's grace. You may be here tonight and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to know that God can save you tonight. You can leave here tonight knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that you will spend eternity with him and you can begin treasuring him with your life forever. The Bible says to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You see, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us what we are in our sins. We are against God. We are sinners. God is holy and just. And we are sinful man under His just condemnation. But God demonstrates His own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if you're here tonight and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ and you have no clue about most of what I'm talking about tonight, listen to me. God can save you tonight because of the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. He can make you alive. And then real life, real true life will begin for you. I'll be around after the service tonight. If that's you, love to talk to you. Love to share the hope of Jesus. Man, what an awesome thrill we get.
to those of us who are believers tonight, and I'm closing. Started out with this, I'm going to end with this. Is grace amazing to you, or is it boring? Is grace amazing, or is it boring? We should abound with joy and delight in God who by his sovereign grace made us alive in Christ. And he's going to spend all eternity making known his immeasurable grace to us. That's amazing. That is amazing. I pray I pray that Ephesians chapter 2 messes you up for the rest of your life. I hope, I hope, I pray that you're never the same. And you can blame the word of God for that. I'm just the messenger. Grace is amazing. And your salvation is all grace. Grace alone. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Father, I pray that if there is one here tonight that doesn't know you, that they would repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ and begin to walk in newness of life. That you would draw them to you right now. Father, I pray for the rest of us that grace would be fresh on our hearts and our minds and that we would live out our lives in light of your amazing grace in saving us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.